Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Losing streak. Paul against Randall. Crossover. Pull back. Spin. Throws it up with the basket. Oh, it goes in. Chris Paul with a circus shot. And the Knicks are down five. Paul, two consecutive daggers. This one will set. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. The Suns just finished their road trip 3-2, a win in overtime against the Bucks, a win in Philadelphia, a loss in Boston and Brooklyn, and then ended it with the win against the Knicks. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, you know, we're coming at you guys a day later than we typically like to. Um, so we gambled a little bit, but I think yeah. it paid off for us because... Uh, yeah, it's it's much more exciting to record right now after that Knicks win as opposed to if we did an episode after that Nets loss yesterday. So uh, yeah, it was it was great. I could talk about this. Uh, we'll talk about the entire road trip, and I think that's the reason we're doing this. But I could talk about just that Knicks game forever. I think that Knicks game was one probably the most fun game, even though the Bucks game went to overtime. There's something about a game where like the Suns were kind of out of it for a while, but just from like a score perspective, but watching the game, I never felt like the Suns were going to lose that Knicks game. I always felt like there was another thing that was another gear that they could get to defensively in that game. And to see them come back and win, I think that's like, that was probably the most entertaining game for me. Can I just say anytime we play the Knicks, it's personal for me. (laughs) Having grown up around Knicks fans, uh, constantly. And you know, like I, I, I get on them a lot. Knicks fans deserve to have a good team this year, and they deserve to have good teams in, in general. They've suffered uh, for a long time. They have one of the worst ownerships as, as well in the NBA, but but it's just personal every time you play the Knicks, man, because that is one of the loudest, most boisterous, mm. just hubristic fan bases you will find. And any time coming into this game, you knew, because you know every other person with a blue check mark you see on NBA Twitter in the first place is a Knicks fan. And you mm. knew that if they were going to get their 10th straight win tonight, mm-hmm. they were going to talk a lot of shit. So when the Suns came out of the gate and they were down by like as much as 15 in the first mm-hmm. quarter, I was, I was, my blood pressure was rising 
And I was ready to get full on my soapbox and just like yell at Adam Silver about how the schedule's bullshit, the back-to-back suck, which by the way, I'm still willing, totally willing to talk about that Mm -hmm. um, because that's just been like a shitty thing about the NBA this year. But for them to rally back, get that win, it was personal for me (laughs) and it was was just a, it was a great win. Back when the Suns were bad, uh, the tickets were very cheap for, for a long time. And uh, I went to, my girlfriend and I went to a Knicks game, a Suns-Knicks game. And we were up sort of in the cheaper seats surrounded by Knicks fans because this is just, one, you know, they come to Phoenix once a year and there's a bunch of people from New York and Phoenix. So they're all at this game. And uh, at halftime, uh, I looked at my girlfriend and I was like, do you want to leave? <laughs> and we just left it and went and watched it at a bar. Uh, because you're right, Knicks fans love the Knicks. That's that's the truth about Knicks fans, and to that, I give them credit for. But I do think when people say the NBA is better when the Knicks are good, I think a lot of that has to do with those are people who write <laughs> about the NBA, and it probably their jobs get a lot easier. Yeah, when exactly. The Knicks are good <laughs> because then they just write, "Hey, the Knicks are good," and they get like two million. Yeah, cuts. the Knicks <laughs> are good. Yeah, it's you just get like a chorus of that in your mentions. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's easier. It, it becomes a little easier for them. Uh, but yeah, it, the the Knicks. First of all, the Knicks are good, and they are actually kind of fun to watch. I've actually had quite a bit of fun watching the Knicks. Obviously, improvements across the board. Here's um, here's what's awesome about this Knicks team is that it's not New York is a big market and it typically we would think it would be easy to attract big free agent stars to to a market like that maybe not specifically the Knicks because of their history but what's easy to appreciate uh, about them this year is that they're a combination of homegrown draft talent and just really smart role players Mm -hmm. yeah Reggie Bullock uh, unsustainably good in the last uh, few games uh, Derek Rose, sort of a redemption uh, after being bad. I mean, he had some time in Detroit, but Detroit was so bad. Even Julius Randle. I mean, people thought Julius Randle was going to be maybe not as... I mean, nobody expected him to be as good as he is this season. I think oh. one of the biggest improvements for me is watching his passing. He's become a playmaker, for other, like a legitimate playmaker, making nice reads for other people in yeah. a way that I never saw out of him. He's not the MVP, but he is awesome. He had, you know, you're allowed to have a bad night every once in a while. He had a bad night tonight. But I would say, I would caution anyone who hasn't watched a lot of Julius Randle this year, tonight wasn't who Julius Randle is. And to your point, Mike, I remember a poll, you know, how they ask fans, like, for their opinions during the games, during the team broadcast sometimes. I remember a poll from a Lakers broadcast two years ago saying, who is most likely to become an all-star? Julius Randle. (laughs) Uh, Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, or Jordan Clarkson. It was a four-way poll from a couple Ooh. years ago. And I remember it's a screenshot that still circulates sometimes. And it was, um, obviously, this was pre-Anthony Davis trade. And it was Kuzma who won that. Mm. And and there was a point there where people were starting to give up on Julius Randle. It was kind of the Aaron Gordon thing. It was, you know, this guy is 25, 26. We've been saying this is going to be his year for how many years now? And and maybe it just maybe he was a little younger than 25, 26 at that point. But they were just like, maybe this isn't going to happen. And this year he took the leap. And, and really his playmaking, which I'm glad you mentioned, has been has been terrific. I, I don't think we saw the full Julius Randle experience right. tonight. And, right. and, and to give the Suns credit, though, I think the Suns did a very good job yeah. of trapping him 
in the post and and doubling him somewhat timidly sometimes. I mean, they didn't do it every every time he touched the ball in the post, but they were very smart about the help defense they did play. They didn't overstay their welcome, constantly doubling him. I, I mean, the rotations were also just very sharp, um, but they, they did a great job of limiting him. Yeah, Cam Johnson, I think, in particular. Although Torrey Craig's been good throughout his time, I think Cam Johnson, I, I, I'll continually mention this, underrated defender, just every single game he does a good job on certain guys and even when he has struggles like he did in this game up until the last five minutes or so uh, his defense still allows him to be a plus at least on one end of the floor and even in spacing wise people still guard him uh, at the three-point line even when he's struggling uh he he was really good i want to go back to that list of players that you mentioned is kyle kuzma definitively the worst of those players now that jordan clarkson is actually like probably going to win i mean he's going to win six man of the year i think we can just kind of i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say that these days you know they're they're saying joe ingles has given him a run for his money um that's interesting just based on the fact that his his shot has gone away from him um clarkson that is uh Mm -hmm. since the all-star break he's just not hitting the same difficult shots he was so i think that actually might be a close race ironically between two teammates um yeah, I I think it's I think it's close. I'd I'd still be tempted to say Clarkson is a better player than Kuzma. Therefore, Kuzma is, is probably the worst player out of those four. Yeah, that's kind of and funny Ingram there. Ingram was just so raw, man. Yeah. But, but but New Orleans has figured the equation out with him too. Ingram is interesting because we're not even talking about the Suns at this point. But <laughs> we will we will in a second. <laughs> Ingram is interesting to me because uh, he's really good uh, and he does a lot of things well. But I just feel like there is something so far missing in his decision-making part of his brain a little bit that just doesn't allow him to be to like utilize all of those skill sets in the best possible way. It's actually how I felt about, and still kind of do, feel about Zach Levine in a lot of ways where Zach Levine can do so many things well, but there's a reason I feel like teams with Zach Levine on them are never that good because he continually makes bad decisions. And sometimes those shots go in, to his credit, uh, but defensively is where it becomes somewhat of a problem. But yeah, that's kind of an interesting, that whole Lakers group sort of fanning out across the league and all of those players being, I think, positive players. Even Kuzma, I think they signed him to a good contract and has become a pretty good defender. It, it's kind of interesting, so, sort of redemption for them. Uh, but yeah, the Suns won <laughs> against the Knicks. We're recording about an hour after that game, an hour and a half after that game ended. And it was a fun game. And I think yeah, Devin Booker was kind of the story of this game early, especially because nobody else really had it to start this game. There's been some weird panic about Devin Booker. Every, this It feels like there's this ebb and flow with how fans feel about him now that the Suns are good. Where previous to this, when the Suns were kind of not good, Suns fans just kind of had his back uh, at all costs, and there's still a lot of those for the record. But there's like a there's like this group of Suns fans that if he's not good for a two or three game stretch, they start panicking immediately. And then of course he's good uh, for five games in a row. And here's yeah. the thing, we're online too much. Yeah, <laughs> with That's like true. it really just describes the ebb and flow of a lot of this stuff. But but I thought this was the quintessential Suns experience tonight, in the sense that I don't think it was just Evan Booker. I think we had that experience with every player, which was kind of kind of ridiculous also kind of awesome though because it speaks to speaks to all of the critical role players on this roster stepping up in the right moments but as you read through the tweets on sun's twitter myself included i just react to things as they come in throughout the game there was uh, there were hints of 
Booker's not giving us enough. Booker needs to needs to give us more. Uh, oh, Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, they can't buy a shot. They need to start hitting their shots. Oh, DeAndre Ayton's not bringing the energy. That that one was me. He needs to be more energetic. Uh, Chris Paul, we need a run from Chris Paul. We got a run from Chris Paul. But, you know, it, it's it kind of speaks to everything about the Suns this year because I've watched every game. We've collectively, we've covered every game. We've talked about every game. And still, I feel like there's no neat, tidy narratives that just describe the the Suns play this year. It's just kind of been a lot of different guys going on various runs and and leading to this collective fantastic record and and the situation where you're second in the Western Conference. But that ebb and flow has been there with everyone. It it just hasn't been like one superstar. And and this again, we talked about this on our YouTube channel last week. Is Chris Paul or Devin Booker the MVP? This is why I think neither guy is the MVP because there just hasn't been that that guiding force that steadying hand that you can count on in every single game. But that doesn't mean it's not a, a terrific team as we're seeing. That's Is that good or bad? Uh, yeah, I, it depends how of, you spin it. Right, That's because all. a lot of a lot of what it comes down to in the playoffs is is big big players like big stars making big plays. That's a common thing in the playoffs and it's and we've talked about it a lot. It's not just oh the lights are brighter and the stage is bigger. No, it's that Teams know your plays better. They switch more. They cause your plays to break down more. And that means that things are sort of broken down to more of an isolation game in the playoffs. So big stars coming up big often means can a player score one-on-one or one-on-two sometimes against good defense where they understand exactly what's coming. And, you know, to, to your point, the Suns don't really have Giannis, for example, or even LeBron. As good as Anthony Davis is, LeBron is the engine that runs the Lakers. Of course, Damian Lillard, Luka Doncic. There's no, there's no so, like ultra transcendental like star like that. I mean, obviously I, Devin Booker and Chris Paul are there, but it's different in how they play. There's a nuance to it. I think it doesn't bother me at all that the Suns don't have a Giannis or a Luka. Because those are the types of guys where the offense is built around them to give them the ball every single possession and then get out of the way. Consider what happened with the Knicks tonight. In in fact, Dan Devine from The Ringer was just talking about this. This is why he was saying the Suns are so good. is because Devin Booker went into the fourth quarter with 30 points. The last few minutes of the game, the Knicks were sending two or three guys at him trying to trap him on every pick and roll. The fact that Booker was able to give it to Chris Paul as his plan B, and we saw Chris Paul do what he did in the final minute, that's actually very encouraging for the Suns. That's that's awesome. That says to me that, I mean, we, we knew this all along, right? Because they're like the sixth, seventh best offense in the NBA, right? But they are clearly an elite offense. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the best offense. You don't always need to be the best offense to win the finals. But where I think you can make the distinction is, okay, Luka doesn't necessarily have those teammates. He doesn't have that plan B. Even Giannis doesn't necessarily always have that, in my opinion, with Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday. But now... You go over to teams like Brooklyn, who we played this week. That's the type of team where it really scares me, and and I think echoes exactly what you're talking about, is if the game bogs down, you switch everything, and it's just ISO after ISO, yeah, Giannis and Luka don't scare me, but KD, Harden, and Kyrie on the same team definitely scares me, and there's a very, very legit question, and I don't really know what the answer is to do the Suns have enough elite shot-making to sustain their offense in a series against a team like that. Frankly, the way I'm leaning after after the L we took to them this week is no, we don't. And if Brooklyn is fully healthy, they're going to beat anyone. But I yeah. guess you never know. 
I well, I feel like every single team, including the Lakers, are hoping, and and I don't want to say this in the, in the worst possible way, but they're hoping that somebody tweaks their ankle a little bit on that Nets team because how do you guard that? We're just talking about it. The the what you're talking about, I think, is actually really interesting. Philadelphia was a good example where Philadelphia has one Matisse Thibel. They don't have two of them, and that means that one Matisse Thibel is now chasing around Devin Booker uh, constantly. And yes, they can put Ben Simmons on Chris Paul, and they can put George Hill on Chris Paul, but if the Suns had one more guy, then the defender that would be guarding that third guy would not be as good as Ben Simmons. He would not be as good as Matisse Thibel. And I think that's that's a point that I wanted to make as well, watching these games. And, you know, you can make a, you can make an argument that the Suns played the five best teams in the East in this road trip. I mean, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and I guess Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee. I, you know, I have this automatic built-in Milwaukee disrespect where I just don't believe in them the way other people tend to. I do believe in them more with Drew Holiday than previously, uh, but they still have Bud. But those are arguably the three teams that are most likely to come out of the East. And then you have Boston and the Knicks. The Knicks are, I don't even know, they're on a nine-game, they were on a nine-game win streak. You know, they could have been on a 10-game win streak here. So how good you think they are probably depends on your proximity to New York (laughs) at this point. But (laughs) I don't know. They they look okay. They look good. good. I'm not sure how sustainable a lot of what they're doing is. They'll make the second round. I, I don't. I just don't seriously believe in, in them against any of the top tier of the Eastern Conference. They need a more legitimate, to what I was saying, a, a steadying presence of some sort at the point guard position. They're basically a year behind. They're a little bit better because they have a winning record and the Suns had a losing record last year. But honestly, they're kind of a CP3 away from, from contention. Yeah, I, that's I, that's probably a good way to put it. And uh, that's actually an interesting thing that we have to talk about at some point. Uh, but let's say they did cover. They did play the the five five of the best teams in the East at least. Sure. Maybe not the five best teams. You can put Miami in there at some point, depending on how well they're playing on every any given day. Um, three and two is what they come out of that road trip with, and you can make an argument that that's really good. I mean, they're on an Eastern Conference road trip. There were times where Devin Booker was really struggling. That Philadelphia game, I think Thibel really took his lunch money a little bit in that game, in a lot of ways, and. Uh, and even in Boston, there was a, a struggle there as well. But can I just say, Boston doesn't count. Yeah. That that game didn't count. Not because Boston's not a good team. They're a good team. That game didn't count because, ah, uh, uh, and I hate doing this. I hate doing this because I don't want to make excuses. But these back-to-back games, this this is what I was prepared to be angry about tonight. And, and lo and behold, here I am, and I got myself angry about it. But... These back-to-back games are bullshit <laughs> because I want the Suns at full strength in every game so that we can like properly analyze it with a clear head. We want all the players, the, the maximum number of players on both sides to be healthy so we can really talk about these teams in the type of simulating the setting that they would be in in the playoffs. And you just can't do that with these back-to-backs. Mikhail Bridges played like 45 minutes in, in a back-to-back in that Boston game. It was it was absurd basketball in so many ways. I just, I, I don't really, there's nothing that I took away from that game. There are things I took away from various games this week. That one is the one that I kind of just discarded. That's fair. Uh, that's a fair thing to say. But looking at all of them, you know, together, I mean, do you do you think that there's anything specific to learn from this? Now, I, I think that that Brooklyn game was obviously the game that you point at 
as an example of what the Suns could be running into in the playoffs. It's just that's such an extreme version of that. But beyond the specific shot making on the other side of that, the way that Brooklyn defended the Suns, I think is something that we're still going to talk about. They switched everything and that gummed them up. They It, it caused the Suns to have some struggles in that specific game. Yeah. I think they've gotten a little bit better at it. I, I want to say that, but it's still, it still seems like it's going to come down in a lot of ways to isolation scoring by Chris Paul and Devin Booker because it's difficult to get the ball in to DeAndre and pass that first line of defense. And, and then how much do you trust him in that scenario? And obviously you have, depending on who you have, you don't want Jay Crowder dribbling like at all. <laughs> and Mikhail Bridges, you know, it comes and goes with him as, as we saw on this road trip. It comes yeah. and goes. Obviously this Knicks game was the best possible representation of that. Overall, the Suns are better in those scenarios when Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges are hitting shots, obviously, because a lot of times Devin Booker is going to draw two guys. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, what the Nets was uh, were doing was interesting. I don't know if you saw the analysis from Mike Prada. Um, I retweeted it mm-hmm. today. Um, is it did you did or you didn't? I did. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I wanted to make reference to it and and not take credit as if it were my own analysis because honestly, Mike's one of the one of the smartest guys in the business. He talked about what the Nets were doing um, as a specifically. A lot of times you switch and you just think, okay, so now you've got a big on a small. Why don't you just give the ball to the big and he punishes the small? But NBA teams and, and defenses, specifically in the playoffs, the good teams are getting a lot better at kind of recognizing ways that they can fine-tune things and make them more efficient. So what they were doing is a process called a scram switch. They would switch. If you had DeAndre Ayton come up and screen for Devin Booker at the top of the key, the Nets are going to switch. That's their initial action. And so Mike was breaking down this, um, Mike Prada, not not you, Mike, was breaking down this play where Tyler Johnson uh, switched onto DeAndre Ayton. The Suns rotate the ball. They're trying to get the ball to DeAndre Ayton in the post because Tyler Johnson, that's a six foot two guy. You're very happy to attack that. Except what the Nets were doing all night is they would kind of sneakily have Jeff Green, who was off. You know, he was guarding the the corner shooter in the opposite um, in the opposite corner on the weak side, and they would have Jeff Green in this case come over and do a quick switch with Tyler Johnson. So Tyler Johnson, he switches the initial action, then he goes, runs off to the corner, while Jeff Green comes up from the weak side, and he switches on to DeAndre Ayton. So ideally, you're trying to punish the switch. You want Ayton on Tyler Johnson. Instead, what you actually get is him guarding Jeff Green, who's a little bit smaller, but is still like a six foot eight, six foot nine guy. Not a, you know, not a matchup that you can just go to DeAndre Ayton to again and again and expect him to be able to punish that to the level that you would necessarily like so by doing this the nets really neutralized a lot of what the suns were able to do and you might say okay while they're doing that scram switch while tyler johnson and jeff green are kind of figuring out where exactly they're going doesn't that mean someone's open and yes it does mean someone's open it means that corner shooter is open there's always going to be an, an open shooter on the perimeter while that process is going down but at actual NBA game speed, you have to be very, very precise with your ball movement. And this is where so much depends on DeAndre Ayton's ability, and we're asking so much of him at a young age to really recognize the right reads almost instantaneously and just fire bullet passes off to the right guys. And, and not to mention create for himself by kind of dribbling into those those post mismatches. So it's just it's more difficult than just Ayton has a small guy, feed it to him. That's I guess that's all I'm really trying to say. And and really what what the Suns need to do 
to beat defenses when they start getting that smart and precise about it is actually quite difficult. And I thought Mike did a great job of breaking that down. And then Brooklyn just did a fantastic job of demonstrating that to us um, the other day. Yeah, the scram switch is something that I've talked about, too, uh, because the Suns are good at it. The Suns are actually a team that's that's become very, very good at that, especially when Jay Crowder is on the floor. I think Jay Crowder might be one of the best players in the NBA at recognizing a mismatch on the weak side, so where the ball is not. If if players switch and there's a mismatch, he's the first to sort of push a guy in the direction to the better matchup for the Suns and take whoever the bigger guy is underneath the basket. So the Suns are actually really good at that too. But yeah, it's it's something that it, it makes every team struggle a little bit. And ultimately, it's as simple as a lob pass takes longer to get to uh, like DeAndre Ayton under the rim. And that gives defensives more time to react to that. So a chest pass can be a split-second pass to somebody in the corner, and they can catch it. A lob pass takes a little time. It takes a little more precision. I really like um, what Mikhail Bridges does. I think I've seen Jay Crowder do this too. But I think Mikhail is the best at the team of he'll be in the corner just spotting up for a shot or whatever. Yeah. And he's not getting the ball, and he sees that the Suns are struggling to make that entry pass from the top of the key to DeAndre Ayton, so he cuts to the middle of the floor. It's very textbook, very middle school fundamentals type basketball. Mm -hmm. He cuts to the middle of the floor, catches the entry pass right at about the elbow, and then feeds an easier lob pass to to DeAndre Ayton. It's not, you can't run your entire offense that way, but like an example, we've beat this dead horse (laughs) all season long, but an example of, a reason that you like Mikhail Bridges for the little things and don't miss Kelly Oubre is like that's an example of something Kelly Oubre would have never yeah. done. And Mikhail Bridges, it's just like automatic. He does that two or three times a game where Chris Paul and, De- uh, and Devin Booker, they're good passers generally, but they've thrown some shitty entry passes or, or attempted entry passes to DeAndre Ayton uh, when they're trying to lob those passes up from 30, 35 feet away. To have Mikhail cut there and make it a little bit easier on them is, is a very smart move. Yeah, it's first of all, it's tough. It's on both guys. It's on DeAndre Ayton and it's on Chris Paul and, and Devin Booker because DeAndre Ayton has to make himself as big of a target as possible by sealing off and making sure that they time it correctly. And then the guys that are throwing the passes have to make proper passes. For Mikhail coming from the corner like that, they call that flashing um, to, to the middle of the floor and catching it in the free throw line area. And I just want to point out once again that one of the things that the Suns need the most against the type of playoff defenses that they're going to face is playmaking from that exact area of the floor, which is around the free throw line. Because when teams sell out at the three-point line and they sell out at the rim, there is an area in the middle of that at the free throw line where playmakers can do a lot. and But usually you have to catch the ball there because if you're dribbling, there's going to be a defender in your face. For Mikhail Bridges to be able to come up, catch the ball there, and make the right read, I think is brilliant. And today I thought it was really interesting because there was a specific time where he flashed from the corner to the free throw line. Devin Booker passed it to him at the free throw line and nobody came up to guard him. So he just shot it. He just shot the mid-range shot and he hit it. Right. And, that, and that's an important thing, too, to be able to make that read in real time. And the confidence to shoot that mid-range shot is not something that's lost on me because he was not doing it earlier. It's really just a this-season thing, a development mm-hmm. for him. Uh, and it's really important. And actually, this is something that's tough because we are not we haven't talked about it yet. Two guys are injured, Jay Crowder, Dario Saric. The importance of Dario Saric in the playoffs 
is that he's pretty good at playmaking from that area. And the fact that he's been so bad lately is going to be a problem for the Suns if we can't get it right because having a guy off the bench that can do what Mikael Bridges did in that scenario would help a lot, especially at the big man position. Yeah, just staying with uh, with Mikael for a second, that's kind of what he's had to figure out this entire year is that experience of sometimes he has gravity, sometimes he doesn't. He goes up against some defenses that are willing to concede open shots to him, and he's like, okay, I'll bury bury a 40 plus percent of my threes and make all my shots at the rim and make you pay for this and then other teams which actually now want to chase him off the three-point line or guard him heavily contested when he gets into that mid-range spot so it's got to be a very weird experience for him because he's still figuring out exactly how well respected he is by defenses when he goes from team to team but i do want to give him a shout out you you kind of began this whole conversation saying hey the suns need a tertiary uh playmaker slash scorer Mikhail Bridges, over this five-game road trip, averaged 16.4 points per game. Mm-hmm. Probably, I don't know, you know, I, I wouldn't say he exactly filled the role of quite what you were talking about, Mike. Right. Like, he didn't quite live up to that. But 16.4 points per game might be the most points we've ever seen scored by Mikhail over a five-game stretch in his career. I don't know that for a fact. It just kind of feels like it might be. Uh, so, you know, definitely an encouraging road trip for him overall. He hit all the right shots. He got them in a variety of ways. Yeah, it's especially nice because his three-point shot was not really falling the way that it has been uh, throughout the season. So to be able to find ways to score without that has been huge. And I think that's why he continues to be a more valuable player than basically anyone outside of Chris Paul and Devin Booker because like Cam Johnson struggles when he doesn't hit that three in ways that Mikael Bridges does not. Mikael Bridges can get out there on fast breaks. He can find spaces in between. And his finishing has become so creative, something we talked about uh, last week with Dan, uh, that he's capable of finishing. There was a really nice end one in this Knicks game where he found a way to go up and under, something Beautiful. that I don't know if we've seen yeah. him do uh, no. with his left hand. And, and that was just one of those things that he just keeps adding things and adding things to his game. There's one thing I wanted to talk about. I have a few things that I made notes of. The DeAndre Ayton clutch offensive rebound has become a thing. Uh, for the Suns where they're struggling offensively in the clutch and he just finds a way to get that offensive rebound by tipping it up over and over and over again and then getting both hands on it before anyone else can and giving the Suns another possession. That's beautiful. That's a really nice thing. We talk about the things that can happen when teams switch on the Suns. Well, you don't always have to give DeAndre in the ball. You can attack it other ways. And for him to get those rebounds at that specific time of the game is going to be huge, huge, huge for the Suns. So it's been fun to see that. We've talked about Kobe assists before, right? Like sometimes yeah. Devin Booker gets a switch and, and De- yeah, DeAndre Aiden has the small in the post, but like Devin Booker just taking a big man off the dribble and if he misses it, you know Aiden is there to collect the rebound. Sometimes that's the best offense. In fact, I'd say yeah. most of the time that's probably the best offense. Uh, well, especially in the clutch because he can pass it back to Chris Paul and, De- and Devin Booker. And then they can eat 10, 15 more seconds off the clock mm. in that specific scenario where they have a lead, for example, and they have time uh, that they can eat off the clock. It's just a really nice time for him to find ways to, to rebound. That's been a nice thing. But what have you thought? What did you think about DeAndre Ayton on this road trip? There are times where I was like, wow, this team's un- unbeatable. And there are times, I think, where he was struggling a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think we saw anything super new from him i think uh, we saw a committed focus with his energy and rebounding and and defense for the most part and that's what we needed um offensively 
Yeah, he didn't get... I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the box scores now. He just did not get a lot of shots on this yeah. road trip even, right? Yeah. Like, he, he only took nine... Sorry, that's against San Antonio. That's not updated. One second. He only took uh, eight against the Sixers. He only took eight against Boston. He only had seven tonight against the Knicks. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm just kind of piecing together how I feel about it now. You know, it could um, be the type of thing where he has been playing well, so defense is adjusted, and I, I didn't I don't necessarily to, to see that. To, I don't necessarily think it's a, a bad thing when he doesn't have a, no. a ton of shots as long as his effort is there, and I thought it was. They, they don't win the three games that they do without it. Yeah, um, I agree with that. He, di- he didn't stand out in a bad way, really, at all this, uh, this entire week. Maybe uh, before, maybe in the Boston game, but I mean, again, I'm discarding the Boston game. Everyone looked bad in that game. It, it was nice to see him play that well on a back-to-back. Uh, you know that that was a nice thing for him. And even Brooklyn, I thought I mean, Brooklyn is the type of of game where he would need to be really, really good for the Suns to have any chance to beat them because they don't have a lot of size, and the size that they do have, they're not the best. I mean, they're just not great defenders. Um, so that would be an example of where they need to be really good. Well, um, and, and he, he had eight offensive rebounds in, in that, that game. Sp- yeah, exactly. That's I insane. Mean, yeah. And they, I mean, they'll go small, they'll switch everything. Right. And then he has the opportunity to get the boards at that point. So that was, um, that was tied for a season high, his eight offensive rebounds against Brooklyn. Now I'm going to look it up quickly and see it's not a career high. Jesus. He had 10 offensive rebounds yeah. in a game last year. Yeah. DeAndre Ayton, man, like they, if there's one thing you can, you just cannot get on this guy about. Well, I guess that's kind of why we do get on him, though. Like when he brings that motor to the table, yeah, yeah. ten offensive rebounds in a game, he's capable right. of that. Right, and that type of play, I feel like, is underrated. Uh, just finding those offensive rebounds, it's 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 vital for his position. Jay Crowder rolled his ankle. Uh, Dario Saric, I've suspected that he's been injured for a little while. Uh, and it's actually kind of interesting. They didn't. They didn't say that he had. They said ankle, and then for Dario on the injury report, they said injury management. <laughs> Whereas for which Jay is, Crowder, which is uh, code for we fucked up and we're trying to fix it now. Yes, this guy has been injured and we've been hiding it. It's my suspicion. I have no proof of this for the yeah. record. Where, but like the the injury report was different for Jay Crowder. Like it just said injured. And then now Abdel Nader had surgery on his knee, so he's going to be out for the rest of the season and likely gone for the playoffs. Uh, I don't think they said exactly what the injury was, but he's gone. That that knee must have been pretty sore, given that bizarre, <laughs> you've been telling us. <laughs> bizarre. I, there, yeah, are I some mean, menis- there are some meniscus injuries that you don't need surgery for. So there's a chance we, that, yeah. They've always done this with us. You know, like it's just not, mm-hmm. you just give in to the fact that it's not the most transparent process. Do you remember a couple years yeah. ago when TJ Warren was out with a mystery yeah. injury for like, Two yeah. months. Yeah. Yep. There are still some Suns fans that are weirdly angry about that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just it, saying, like, they they don't tell you the full truth. Um, Dario's absence, though. Frank was fine tonight. He he was fine. I still think I still want to say that Frank <laughs> has been better defensively than he has any right to be this season. I think Frank tonight had exactly the type of performance you you expected from Dario early in the season, which was like he's not impacting the ball. Like, he's not getting deflections or blocks, but he's never in the wrong place, and, and that was enough. Yeah. That's that's yeah. basically what it was. But mostly, how much does it make us appreciate the fact that we haven't missed DeAndre Ayton for a single game this season? That does because help a lot. Even Dario being out, 
who's not like he is a center, but he's kind of not a center. He's a center in the NBA in 2021, but like he's not really. Even Dario being out kind of had us in a fit of like, oh shit, what do we do? (laughs) Look at the front court. Here's the reality of the front court rotation of this team. It's a mess. If Aiton misses any games in the playoffs, say goodbye. Yeah, that's that's gonna be right? a struggle. Yeah, he's kind of the most important. Oh, there's uh, just no one that can help. I mean, if any, Chris Paul. I think Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Even if Chris Paul misses a game, is there like a chance that campaign fills his shoes adequately enough? And then where he plays 48 minutes, like there's still going to be a problem. No, there's still going to be a huge, there's still going to be a huge problem. I just think Aiton is like, he's, he's that guy. Absolutely. I agree. There's nobody else on the team that does the things that he does at this point. And that's why a lot of people were clamoring for the Suns to get another back backup guy, including us. We had some suggestions that could have done some of those things, uh, but they didn't. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a few questions from Twitter. Just a few, though, so we can try and get into them a little deeper uh, than normal. So we'll be right back. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed. Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. All right, we're back. Thank you to everyone that asked us questions. We're just going to go through a few here so we can get a little deeper into them. Uh, first one was from Ryan Lithgow. He said, how confident are you that the Mikhail Cam book shooting slump is just a slump and not a result of teams figuring the Suns out, um, especially with the switching in Devin Booker's case, he, he noted, uh, which I thought was a good question. Uh, what do you think about this one? Yeah, relax. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I mean, like, I don't mean it in a demeaning way, obviously, but it's like, you guys got to calm down <laughs> with this. The, the slumps, when they happen, are just slumps. The shooting will come back to everyone. If you watch the Suns' offense and the way the ball whips around, they're still getting the shots that they intend to get. They're generating the right shots. They're getting a lot of open shots. Um, I am not worried about those guys at all. I, I, I think they'll have good weeks and bad weeks. And and really, Mike, I think this is the sad reality, if you want to call it sad, of the NBA in 2021 is when every other shot that you take is a three-pointer, and we know that three-pointers have so much variance and teams have good games and bad games, they have good weeks and bad weeks, well then, you know, sometimes you get caught just having a, a really terrible luck one week in the playoffs, and you get eliminated because 
you know, you have a couple of 40% three-point shooters who only shot 25% that series. It's entirely possible that that sort of thing happens. But I'm not actually worried about any of these guys. They're going to regress positively to the mean. They'll regress negatively uh, negatively to the mean uh, at other points in the season. So they're fine. Yeah. And they all need to shoot. They all need to shoot, including Booker, who's technically the worst three-point shooter of those three guys. Uh, they need to continue to shoot. And I have different thoughts on each of these guys. I, I want to say that I love Eddie Johnson, but when these guys miss, <laughs> when these guys miss three pointers, the solution isn't automatically to drive into other defenders and take different shots. They can continue to make other three pointers if they continue to shoot. Devin Booker talked about it post game. He said at halftime of the next game, he talked to Cameron Johnson and Mikhail Bridges specifically and told them both to continue shooting he said, forget about the mental side of it. What that means is don't be not confident in your shot. Just be confident in your shot and continue to shoot those shots. Because they're the thing is about the, those guys, they will find times to attack the basket and score. But when they are open from the three-point line, they need to shoot those shots. It's not just about making them. It's also about forcing the defense to react to them at the three-point line because that opens up driving lanes for Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and it allows DeAndre to play one-on-one against smaller defenders in the paint. They need to continue shooting. Now, with Cameron Johnson, I think that his shooting slump coincided with breaking his face. Uh, so I think it's fair that's, that he's had a shooting a slump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was scorching hot after coming back from COVID, and then he broke his face, had one good game, and he's struggled a little bit since then. I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm not really worried about that. Have you For ever de- played with a face mask? Or have uh, you ever broken your nose? No, I've played with goggles, and that's tough enough um, by itself. But uh, I don't know. Have I broken my nose? I don't think I've broken my nose. But yeah, I imagine it affects your shot. Uh, just anything anyone, that makes you think. Anyone at home who's broken their nose, I bet there's at least one of you out there. Yeah. <laughs> let, it, let us know if that affects your shot. I feel like it would. I'm still very curious how he did it. The The implication, they never said, oh, he took an inadvertent elbow. They said something like, oh, our practices are really intense and uh, I take the blame for that. Implying that someone punched him in the face, which I find hilarious. It could be a very, uh, you know, like a Steve Kerr thing. Maybe he got in Chris Paul's face and Chris Paul just punched him uh, <laughs> or something. There's um, no way. Chris Paul's an intense guy, but he's not going to do that during a I practice. don't know. I've seen him punch Rondo. Maybe he accidentally spit on on Chris Paul. <laughs> okay, Rondo's was on purpose. But okay, let me move on. Cameron, that's that's who I that's what I think it is. I think it's a lot has to do with the fact that he's hurt. His face is broken. Um Mikhail Bridges, there is part of me that worries a little bit when he goes through slumps because his uh form has uh been somewhat of a roller coaster with how he shoots over the course of his career. So there's a part of me that gets a little more worried about him than others. But as I talked about earlier, Mikhail has found so many other ways to score outside of his three-point shot that I'm not really that worried about it. And even with him, I think the three-point shot is fine. Devin Booker, I think, is interesting. Devin Booker struggled a little bit in these last few games, and I actually don't think it was as a result of switching. I think that Devin Booker struggles the most when he plays slightly indecisive that means that he waits a little bit too long to drive he tries to pass before he shoots just little things like that the last two games i think brooklyn and new york and the knicks 
both of those games, he looked decisive. He looked like a guy that knew exactly when he was trying to score. He looked like a guy who knew exactly when he was trying to find other guys uh, to score. And I think that uh, that little bit of doubt, that little bit of hesitation in his game is what he struggled with earlier in the season, and I think it's what he struggled with in the last few games. And for him, if it means he's trying to find other guys and get them going, it's fair. But I think when it comes down to it in the playoffs, I have a feeling he's going to be a little more decisive in understanding that his role is going to be scoring as many points as possible in the playoffs. So for him, I'm not worried about it. But I do think it's different than McHale and Cam Johnson. And I think that little bit of decisiveness is what caused it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm mostly not worried. <laughs> um, I think there were a couple of worrisome possessions in the, in the past few games. Uh, one that sticks out in my head is that Knicks game that happened tonight uh he this one he did draw a switch uh and maybe he had the ball i can't remember who was guarding him anymore he had the ball a few feet behind the three-point line and kind of just stood there for about seven or eight seconds straight before yeah, he just, that was randall that was randall uh, well a second nick's help defender started charging him in the last few seconds when they realized oh the shot clock's running out he has to shoot and he just kind of took a contested three without any dribbles or, or movement whatsoever so i think those those moments do still happen and those are the most jarring and the ones that are easy to pick out and talk about on on twitter but i still think uh for the most part that's not who he is i think something he has to do on switches is not what he commonly does and i think this is a chris paul influence by the way is when there's a switch, he waits for everyone to sort of spread out, and then he backs up and he attacks it one-on-one. That's not really his game. He prefers to catch it and go immediately. He likes to catch people off guard, and he has a little bit, even the slightest bit of edge on a defender. He can take advantage of that. When he backs up, the boomerang as they call it, it's just not his game. That's more of a Chris Paul thing. He's not really a dribble god. He's more of an up-and-down guy, a guy who's attacking directly towards the basket. So I think on switches, and I think this is something they'll probably do, he needs to attack faster. It's something as simple as just understanding what you're going to do before you do it and doing it and not really backing up and trying to become that dribble god. No Kyrie, because uh, he's just not that. So that's something that I would say is a good way for him to attack switches. All right, next question. This is from John Voida, and a couple people actually asked something similar to this. John hosts the Suns Jam podcast. Make sure you check that out. Um, Would you prefer to be the two or the three seed or the one seed entering the playoffs? And I think this is an interesting year to be the one seed because the one seed is actually the last team to know who they're playing against. This is something I just heard uh, Zach Lowe talking about uh, on his podcast. There's a weird slight disadvantage of you don't really know who you're playing until the entire, uh, the whole tournament thing that they're doing is over. But what do you think? Well, I'll start with one versus two and three. And then I think there's also a question of two versus three. Um, I obviously would love to be the first seed. I don't think it's all that much of a disadvantage to play someone who, uh, who you find out about at the last second, specifically if that team is going to be Memphis or San Antonio or even Golden State I'm not worried about any of those teams in a full seven game series so I'd rather be the one seed I'm not going to kill myself chasing for it though and this is something I think we've made reference to in the past Utah still has you've got a couple games against Utah coming up or maybe only one game one more game against Utah that's right this week Um, but for the most part they have a very easy schedule and we don't 
So continue to do what you're doing. Prioritize guys' health. Um, if Dario can't make it back, that's fine. If if Jay can't make it back, that's fine. Uh, I'm continue to be in the camp where if you need to rest Mikhail Bridges or or Chris Paul for a game, then I'm totally game with that too. Uh, so you know if you happen to fall into the right situation and you win enough games and you get the first seed, great. But don't kill yourself over it. Um, now for two versus three. I think that's an interesting situation where it falls into into matchups uh, a little bit, right? But mm-hmm. but first, what do you what do you think about the first question? I I would prefer to be the one or the two seed over the three seed, uh, but I think the one seed is the best option, not just for the first round. I think beyond that, if you end up against, say, the Lakers are not somehow not fully healthy, and you end up against Utah or Denver or somebody else, specifically Utah and Denver in in the Western Conference Finals, assuming the Suns have a chance to make it there. Well, if you're against Utah or Denver, they have an advantage in that they're high altitude. And if you can have home court advantage on every team in the playoffs, I think that you should try to get that because having an advantage uh, as, as far as just altitude, not to mention fans, that could, who knows what that's going to look like by the time the playoffs start. But altitude, I think, matters. So you, the one seed, I would prioritize it one, then two, then three in the order in, of those specific numbers. In a funny way, the one seed is is the only way you'd be able to probably, almost certainly at this point, I think, avoid the team that I'm actually afraid of the most, uh, which are the Clippers. If you were the one seed, you wouldn't have to play them until the conference finals. I think you have a better chance of beating the Lakers in a second-round matchup than the Clippers. That's my mm-hmm. current take. Well, and look, if we end up the if we end up as the three seed, there's a chance you play the Lakers in the first round. Right. So that's that's why you don't want three because yeah, we don't want the Lakers to fall anymore. And in fact, um, oh, let me check real quick. The Lakers won today, which is very good. There's 22 seconds left, and Dallas is down by seven to Sacramento. So I'm going to go ahead and say Dallas lost today. The Lakers won. That's very good news because you don't want. Uh, you don't want LeBron, first of all, is coming back soon. Anthony Davis is already back. With LeBron coming back soon, I think it's looking more and more unlikely with each passing day that the Lakers would fall to sixth um, and that you'd have to play them in the first round. Yeah. Clippers and Jazz both lost today as well. Just just going to Kind of uh, the ideal day for the Suns, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Suns do play the Clippers and Jazz as the only two games this week uh, after that. So they have a chance to... Steal the one seat at some point this week and have a significant, more significant lead over the Clippers who have been creeping. The Clippers have been playing very, very well. I tried to tell people that Rondo matters. I know that he's not the only reason, but they didn't have a point guard. They really didn't, and Rondo helps a lot in that case, and, and you can see it happening now. Um, so I guess we're sort of on the same page there. One seat is the best option, followed by the two and the three? Yeah, I would say so. And, and and now that we say it out loud like that, it's like, duh, right? <laughs> but it didn't exactly feel like that, um, answering the question. All right. Another question that people are asking about is the backup center, uh, center minutes. Um, this is essentially at this point, people are mostly talking about whether or not Craig should be playing the backup <laughs> center position instead of oh, Dario. Man. People and are some really people worried. Are, some people Dario. are even throwing in Frank Kaminsky in there <laughs> as to whether or not Frank Kaminsky should be getting minutes at this point. Guys, what we have is what we have. <laughs> you know, yeah. like if if there there were legitimate reasons to be worried about this, but we talked we talked about this. You get, had to go out and get Dwayne Dedman or Gorgie Jang. Like now is not the time to panic about mm-hmm. this stuff. You can't afford to. Dario is your guy. 
for for better or worse. And I think you can afford to play Craig there in, in spot minutes against certain matchups. And I exactly. think that versatility will come in handy. But Dario's still your guy. Yeah, who knew? I guess you knew that Kim Birch was going to be available too. I mean, hey. that would have been nice. Hey. He only wanted to play in Canada. He really wanted to go back to Canada. So Isn't then that, that's he, funny. In, instead he decided to play in Tampa for the remainder of the season. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, here's what I'll say about Craig playing back or playing backup center. I don't think that's a good idea in general um, because I just, first of all, we need Dario playing well. That means he needs to figure out what's going on in these last, the, by the way, there's only like 12 games left in the rest of the season. So there's not a ton of time to really get things going. Uh, so we need him to figure it out. So if he had a problem, if something was bothering him health wise and he has a chance to sit from that and get better, then we need to see him come back and figure out what he's capable of before the season ends. And here's one of the reasons why. If you take Craig and put him at the center position, what you're likely doing is taking him off of a wing who he could be defending or a power forward who he could be defending. Now that might work in some cases, but in a lot of ways, the playoffs uh, teams live or die by how good their wings are playing. And if you take someone who's as good of of a defender as Craig off of a wing, then that's just not that's just not a great option. I think in more likely, uh, Craig at center is going to be with starters. To be honest, in times that teams kind of force DeAndre Ayton off the floor, like the Clippers potentially could uh, in games like that, than it is to for him to be playing as a as a backup center. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you need him on. I'm just kind of running through the list of contenders. You need him on one of Kawhi or Paul George, right? Yeah, Kawhi, you need him Paul George. On one of LeBron or AD. LeBron, yeah. Um, Aaron, Even Aaron Gordon. You know, of course you can put him on Jokic at times. Do you want that? Not really. It's not gonna, like, that's it's what not you need Aiden for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, guys, we, we just need Dario to play well. I'm sorry. But uh, I, I believe in him. I believe. I hope you do too. Well, I, I think at this point you're not going to you're not going to get better by not figuring out what you can do here. He uh, he was so good to start the season and there's an element of of course that was always unsustainable to a point. So there's no surprise in him not being as good, but recapturing some of that magic I think is not impossible and that's the best possible scenario for the Suns is they have more players playing well than replacing one player that was playing well for another. It's the best case scenario is that they both play well. So we'll see how that we goes. We kick-started a Dario Saric six-man-of-the-year candidacy a few months ago. That's true. Like, just don't forget. We we made that popular enough to where Kevin O'Connor put in his power rankings one day. <laughs> I remember he did this. Mm-hmm. He said Dario Saric is coming up close behind Jordan Clarkson for six-man-of-the-year. Like, it was a legit thing that a national analyst said. Just, just mm-hmm. have have some faith. Have yeah. some faith. I think there's a reason the man has has looked worn down uh, over the past few weeks, and hopefully he comes back looking healthy. Listen, I've made the Dario LeBron comparison before, and you know what LeBron likes to do? Take two weeks off in the middle of the season, comes back fully healthy, <laughs> fully energized for the playoffs. That's what Dario's doing right now. We'll get that LeBron back. We have plenty of Aiton stands on Suns Twitter, but where where are our Dario stands? Except for Dario Party, I know she exists, but other than that, we need <laughs> we need more of a cohort. If you were not willing to hear any criticism of, about DeAndre Aiton early in the season, then I don't want to hear it coming from you about Dario Sharge. That's all I'll say. Last question, friend of the podcast, Serge asks, 
what's the correct way to eat a burrito? Now, Sam, you live in, well, northern New York. I'm not going to give away where you live. In uh, in New York City, I think there are very, there are probably very good burritos. I don't know if they're as good as down there. but Is there I good think Mexican food where you live? Where I live? Yeah. I mean, there's Mexicans everywhere at this point. There's, yeah, there are. Um, I mean, look, in, in, in any major city, I live in a top 50 to 75 city in the U.S. in population. It's fine. I, th- I think it's it's suitable. Um, if you go anywhere outside the city, it's it's god-awful, though, obviously. And you know what? Probably, like, even if I brought you to, to a, a joint around here, you would not be... Uh, you would not be impressed. So let's just go yeah. with no, because I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there might be. Maybe you just haven't found it yet. Um, first of all, uh, tacos over burritos, if we're giving burrito opinions here. And Facts. I love burritos. I'm Facts. just saying tacos are just tacos are great. Uh, this conversation came out of, a, of somebody on Sun's Twitter. I'm not going to call him out by name because this is an awful take. Said that you shouldn't be putting salsa on your burritos as you eat them. That's insane to me. Put whatever you want on them. But also, Mexican food is the best when it's really spicy, in my opinion, because I grew up eating it really spicy. So the correct way is to put salsa on every bite that you're eating to ensure that it's spicy on every bite. I like Sam, to lay it out one ingredient at a time yeah. so that you can really, you can just bite into it. You, you bite into a solid two-inch pocket of sour cream yeah. and, then you, and then you hit the, uh, the cilantro layer. It's really good like that. Yeah, you just eat a tortilla with just rice only for like five or six bites and then just beans and then just cheese. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Uh, <laughs> you got anything else before we go? No, I think people have tolerated us uh, enough for tonight. We've got two super important games coming up. The grind continues. Yep. Yep. Um, maybe you'll hear from us later this week if, if there's a good outcome in one of those games. I don't know. We haven't decided yeah. yet. Yeah, if there's a reason. Uh, Jazz Clippers, next two games. Suns could be the number one seed by the end of this week. We will definitely be back next weekend, if not sometime in between. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Paul fires up a three. It's good. Chris Paul from downtown, and that will do it. Big buckets here in the fourth quarter from the Suns. Clutch shooting. And the Knicks down eight with 13.3 remaining. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.